Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Vidushina Hantaraja, and I'm joined as ever today by Chief Football Writer of the Independent, Miguel Delaney, and Northern Football Correspondent, Mark Critchley. They're not in their usual spots, by the way. Hello to Miguel, who's out in Lisbon, while Mark is in Cologne. Lads, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedules to join us here. It's been a frenetic last fortnight as Europe's premier club competitions frantically try and reach a conclusion like never before. We've seen thrills, spills and all sorts of drama and three English teams knocked out as well, which wasn't great. We'll get to that first, but Miguel, how do you think this whole one-off, one-leg competition has been going down? Has it been slightly better than expected? Because from afar, it's been um, thoroughly entertaining. Uh, Ola, as they say here. Um, I think it's worked well, uh, given especially in the utterly bizarre and obviously serious real-life context that this is. I think it's gone as well as it could. Um, The football's been good. Um, There's been a lot of talk about the fact that it's been so good that, uh, that UEFA should look into keeping this for the future. Uh, I think that might work for the Europa League, um, given the given they've often say like in, in in Gdansk a few years ago they struggled to fill the stadium for the final. I think it will be a massive problem for the Champions League, at least if it was in one city, because if it's eight clubs in one city, I don't think any city in Europe is big enough to host that. Maybe London, um, maybe Paris, uh, but you're really talking. It, it, it really is a push because even in a World Cup in a similar situation, it's obviously spread out over the country. That's maybe the only. If it was in England, say you could do, you could maybe do it if it was in Manchester and London over the course. But I think I think it's just too much of a logistical headache to do for the Champions League. And I suppose that's that's one thing from from a from a wider perspective. I have to say, walking around Lisbon, yeah, being walking around the stadiums. It is actually a little bit of a of a sadness, even as good as it's been. In that, like, so in in the in the main square when you walk down from Libertad uh, in Lisbon, they've got a massive inflatable Champions League up, and they they do that every time the the, the final has been staged in, in a in a city. But of course, usually it's kind of just loads of around. There's a great there's a great vibe. You can't move here. It just feels it, 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 the, the city is naturally quite empty compared to usual. And, and it, it, I mean, this would be kind of like I've, I've been to the last um, 11 Champions League finals and you, you get used to just the energy around the city when it's on and that is one of the sadnesses about it, about it at the minute we, even if it is has obviously been offset by how good the football has been yeah we'll, we'll move on to the Champions League a little later but let's start first with the Europa League uh, Critch you are in Germany right now you were originally out there to follow Manchester United uh, and then they got knocked out um from a United perspective, how will they look back on on this trip? Yeah, well, they got they got knocked out before I even got to bed. Before I even slept in my bed at my hotel room, I got here Sunday morning, and then they're out. And so I've spent the last 
few days here, I suppose, reveling in the reaction to it. And I don't, yeah, how would they look back on the trip? Well, they probably enjoyed it a bit more than I have, but uh, given that they <laughs> they weren't here all on the round. But um, but <laughs> no, uh, I think yeah, they'll they'll be they'll be disappointed. Um, look, like the ultimate prize in this competition is a place in the Champions League next season. And from their perspective, they'd already sealed that a few weeks ago. That was already secured, um, having finished in the uh, having finished third in the Premier League. Um, and so there was never really as much riding on it as there might have been. But at the same time, I was almost quite surprised by just the intensity, if you like, of the game against Sevilla, the semi-final on, um, on Sunday night. It was... Uh, Certainly didn't seem like a game that they were just happy to just you know go through the motions and and, and take whatever comes you know it was quite a frantic game really and quite an absorbing game just in terms of how much possession was being turned over and just how many chances there were um, people would have seen it I think if United do take one of those opportunities that they have certainly at the start of the second half then they probably win the game um, part of me does wonder whether that quick flurry that quick burst that they had at that time has maybe skewed our perceptions of it a little bit. I thought generally um, it was it was a, it was a tight contest, a bit of an even contest, but I'd, I'd probably say Sevilla were, were deserved winners in the end. And um, I think that's it's, it's given them food to thought, uh, food for thought really. I mean, we saw Solskjaer; he, he took a bit of criticism really for not using the substitution until as late as the eighty seventh minute, I think it was, um, which people have said, you know. It's a bit of an indictment about the squad depth at his, at his disposal. Maybe, maybe it's something more to do with his game management. Um, but it's given, like I say, United a lot of a lot of food for thought. And a third semi-final defeat, of course, of the season. No, no English club, I don't think, has ever managed that achievement before. So that's one notch on the bedpost for this season, at least. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, things to think about going into next year. But ultimately, not too much damage done because that Champions League place was already secure. Megs, you've been critical of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, does he deserve credit for how this season panned out, how he was able to eventually break into the top four and for this cup run as well? Um... <laughs> the story of Manchester United's season is basically that they signed a £70 million player in a way that none of their primary Champions League rivals could, who were, in this case, Leicester, um, Wolves, and if you want to stretch it, Sheffield United, they'll probably not, and finished ahead of them. And actually, the same goes for Spurs as well, and Arsenal. Uh, they Basically, Manchester United brought brought their financial power to bear and finished probably below par, given that they are still a wealthier club than Liverpool and have similar financial power, theoretically, to Manchester City. Um, although, I mean, there are questions about Glazer, um, Glazer restrictions at the moment. Um, so I wouldn't give him that much credit. No, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's the same with Lampard. I, I, I think they're kind of just finishing par, but because of the nature of the job, and, and obviously because there is there is naturally a lot of support or affection for these former playing legends. I think some of their good work is a bit overstated. Um. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> but okay, they've given the context. I think they they do deserve some credit for ultimately uh, meeting their minimum objectives, which is getting back into the Champions League. If anything, okay, so fair enough for that. 
but it doesn't make bigger questions going away. And in fact, even though I do think they were actually very good for a spell in this uh, in, in this match against Sevilla, and you know we're unlucky the goalkeeper was on such good form. Even that's even that spell and these few games, particularly how bad they were against Copenhagen, I think raises fundamental problems with with Solskjaer's approach, which go back some time. It do, it does feel like his whole idea is based on being at a physical optimum, which means overrunning teams. But as we've seen now in almost three distinctive spells over his reign, that works for a period until basically the natural the energy runs out to a degree. It comes back to kind of a level playing field. They, they, they can't bust a gut in the same way. And it feels like they don't have the tactical plan to compensate. So keep getting caught out. Uh, I, I think that's... I think that's, that, that remains the main problem with Solskjaer. The tactical idea of the club is extremely basic. Um, and and there are obviously a range of issues after that as well. Uh, so these, these Europa League games wouldn't fill me with much confidence about uh, Manchester United's medium-term future under this manager. You mentioned at the start of that point... Um... Seven million signing for um, Harry Maguire, and then you know you've you've summed it up talking about Solskjaer needing players to be at a physical optimum and to overrun teams. Both those things, in terms of a new a big new signing and someone who can overrun teams um, in the form of Jaden Sancho, has been looming for the last month or so, even longer than that. Can you give us the latest on on what's actually going on there? Well, there's an impasse basically, um, and we've actually. To be honest, we've had conflicting information uh, from different sides. And I think, I don't want to call it an irritation, but from what I've heard from the players' camp, they've been a little surprised by some of the reports that have come out. Um, um, And I suppose that that would emanate from United. Uh, And... Not that it will put a deal on the thread or anything like that, but from from what from what I've heard, the wages were agreed, um, and United aren't basically pushing up to what Dortmund wants. Uh, now there are, if you, if if you talk to some people around United, they'll actually paint it a bit differently from that, um. But I suppose the fundamental truth is the deal isn't done right now. It still looks a far, a far way off being done. And uh, that, that that's where we're at. Uh, and I, I suddenly have a little bit more doubt about whether Manchester United will actually go and pay what Dortmund want, given some of the financial restrictions. Yeah, I mean, I suppose this is this is open to both of you. Chris, we'll start with you. Has there been any kind of news of any outgoings? as well or any other kind of incomings because I suppose it's all it, it, from the outside it looks like all the eggs have been put into the basket with Sancho but you know what kind of other business are they are they planning well um the policy that they've kind of followed over the last couple of years and certainly since they like to think that the recruitment process has been revolutionized if you like you if you you might remember back at the start of the season there was a lot of um a lot of pieces around just about how many the, the 800-odd right-backs they've been scouting, et cetera, et cetera. And the kind of process that they've followed since then really is to almost to do one deal at a time and get one over the line, get that sorted and move on to the next. Now, you can question whether that is the right way to approach things or not, but we definitely saw that last summer when there was 
a point where they got Daniel James in and then there was a few weeks and it was Aaron Wan-Bissaka and then up until right, right up until the deadline they got the most difficult deal to get done was Harry Maguire and that came through. I think this time, this summer I think is, is slightly different. Um, certainly all the noise is around Sancho and you do, it, because it's a club the size of Manchester United and it is Manchester United, you hear a lot of other players being linked. But personally, I think that Sancho has always been the priority target um, will be the priority target. And like Miguel says there, I, I do doubt their capacity and their willingness really to spend certainly a lot of money on in other positions and on other players. Um, there are other areas of the squad what you might look at and say that need improving, I think. Um, certainly, perhaps midfield, maybe. Um, I think the defence has, even though it's got a statistically a good defensive record this season I think there's still questions over who's going to partner Maguire in the centre of defence and I think ideally they they would like an, another left back Brandon Williams has come on a lot this year but he's right footed and he's very different to Luke Shaw in that degree and Luke Shaw's injured a lot of the time so another option there would be desirable if you like but the sense that you get is that um, as you put it there kind of all the eggs are in one basket with Sancho and then in terms of outgoings, I mean, there's a, there's a whole range of players at the club that you could say are on the fringes and, and you will be looking to move on um, from Marcus Rojo, Phil Jones, Chris Smalling, even though he's had a successful year in Roma. If, if he's the defender that they can get a buyer for, maybe they'd look towards him rather than one of the others. Um, people like Jesse Lingard have been linked away. But I think with all of those you have to take into context just the, the the current climate, the current situation, and just how difficult it's going to be, not just for United, but for a lot of clubs to move players on who perhaps aren't the most desirable to other clubs either. Um, you know, it, we're going to see a bit of a slow market in those terms. And so, you know, <laughs> they might need to sell some of those players in order to raise cash to, to, to pursue other targets, but they might not be able to do that. And so, you know, all, all roads point to Sancho, really. Just one through those, actually. Uh, I heard that Lingard is actually now being reintegrated into the squad and it looks like they may keep him. Um, and we could see similar with Smalling. Although I think Sol- you're right, I think Solskjaer, I think Smalling is one that ideally United would get a certain fee for him and reinvest it. But because, of, because as, as Critch said, as the, because of the state of the market, they might have to make do with what, they, with what they've got. And I think actually, this, I think this is a theme that's going to be very interesting going into the new season. Which quite starts in, even though this season hasn't finished yet. But because the market is so restricted, this is going to be a real test of the caliber of managers. Maybe more, more in a greater way than we've seen for some time, because it's going to be much more difficult to just go out and solve problems with signings. They have to. They're gonna. They're gonna have to make do what they've got to a much greater degree. Yeah. Well. Critch, I suppose we should move on from uh, from Manchester United and talk about Wolves as well. They fell at the quarterfinal stage to United's conquerors, Sevilla. Um, perhaps a game too far, and I mean that kind of literally in a, a given the scale of their season, which started. I think if, if I'm right, thinking twelve months before that quarterfinal, um, they were four already four games into their 2019-20 league. Cause it, oh you know, 2019-20 season. It's been, yeah, one hell of a slog. Yeah, uh, I think it was, I, I like Sam Wallace's line in the Telegraph from his match report, which was the cup run that runneth over. Um, that's that's one I would have liked to have written myself. Uh, yeah, I, so I think ultimately it was up to like 59 games for Wolves, um, which actually 
United have played 61 this season, so slightly longer in terms of games, although I don't think longer in terms of days and months. Um, but yeah, like a bridge too far ultimately in the end, but I think with Wolves, we've seen, it's, it's easy to forget that this was a club that was a, was a championship team, basically. Well, they only just got promoted two years ago. And yet we're talking about them now in the quarterfinals of Europe's secondary club competition. And, you know, we're questioning whether they should have gone further. I think the the progress that's been made there over the last two years under Nuno, who's probably pound for pound one of the one of the best managers in Europe, when you look at his level of achievement compared to resources, um, even though they do have significant resources compared to most clubs that get promoted out of the championship. But even so, I think it's, um, you know... And even though it was a kind of a disappointing way to leave it, conceding so late against Sevilla, um, they're only going to take strength from this this run and, and go forward into the new season. And um, no European football now, I think I'm right in saying, because because they kind of tailed off a little bit towards the end and missed out. But that, that might only aid them uh, going forward and help them put up a, another charge for the Champions League places like, we, like they threatened to do at least uh, towards the back end of, of the season's just gone. Yeah, well, Chris, you wrote um, about the the final today. You've said you've been particularly impressed with Inter Milan. And Miggs, you mentioned on Twitter that you thought Antonio Conte, in your view, was the best manager in the world if he's only at a club for one season. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I was being slightly facetious. I do think he is one of the best in uh, in Europe. Uh, you probably have Klopp ahead of him now. What do I have Poch ahead of him? Don't know. Um Probably still have Guardiola ahead of him. In fact, you might have Nagelsmann ahead of him now. But I think he's certainly in that absolute top tier. I think his impact is so drastic. Uh, and he gets resp- And he, it seems like no matter the situation he walks into, he'll get a response. I mean, he went into a Juve that were in absolute crisis um, and had basically had their, their modern history overturned. Look, look like they, they, they looked like they were in danger of becoming just another club in Italy. Uh, and he obviously his impact basically immediately won them the title, won three in a row, and set up this era where now they're by far Italy's sole super club. Uh, goes to Chelsea, well, first goes to Italy, who uh, have had a disaster of a 2014 World Cup. It's probably one of their wor- worst squad or worst generations in in decades. But is is brilliant there, destroys Spain in that last 16 game in. Um, in the Euros, and then is unfortunate in losing on penalties to world champions Germany in the quarters. Goes to Chelsea after, what, as he put it himself, a Mourinho season, or really the Mourinho season, when they were an absolute basket case, immediately wins the title. And now goes to Inter, who have been for a long time a very dysfunctional club, and has restored, he's not won a title with them. I think it's the first time he hasn't won the league in his first season, but he's restored some real focus there. Uh, get, is getting response out of. I mean, as as many have pointed to, look at the amount of kind of discarded Premier League players and discarded Man United players who are in that squad are suddenly kind of looking really competent at the European level, with, with the best of them, of course, Lukaku, who is a lot more than competent, and they're on the verge of another European trophy. Um, it's really impressive when you when you break it down. There there are obviously obvious problems with Conte, as you can see from how he's already started to kind of abrasively mouth off about. Inter's recruitment in the same way he did at Chelsea, in the same way he did at Juventus. And he seems to often be his own worst enemy in that way. If he didn't have that, though, we'd be talking about um, a, a, a very attractive coach in that way. For anyone, for, and, and I like, I mean, I think in Manchester United appointed him over Solskjaer, they'd have 
possibly won a title. Well, that is, that is something to think about. Critch, um, it's it's coming up a lot because naturally it would do, but Romelu Lukaku is having a hell of a season. Um, and naturally, people are talking about whether United have a right to get rid of him or kind of more broadly how they weren't. Um, you know, you would have known the situations around around his leaving. You know, it's, it's not quite as simple as getting rid of him and then him suddenly being good. Can you just talk us through a bit about it and why he's been so good for Inter? Well, I think um, Lukaku's a player who, like a lot of players, needs manager and needs a manager who will play, build a team around him, if you like, and play to his strengths. And I don't think he had that in Solskjaer, but I don't think that was particularly Solskjaer's fault and I don't think it was particularly Lukaku's. I think when people look back on Lukaku's spell at United, they'll look at the player he came in and actually started pretty well. His first couple of months there were scoring scoring a lot of goals and uh, and looking like he was going to continue that form that he left off with when he when he left Everton and he looked like you know up there with Kane as one of the best strikers in the league but you know well Jose Mourinho happened basically and we can we can kind of skip over that but people people know the story there but once Solskjaer came in I think he just had a completely different vision and and level of football that Lukaku fitted in some degrees and, and against some opponents. I remember him playing very well away at Paris Saint-Germain um, in, a, in a cup tie away at Arsenal as well, uh, out on the right-hand side. And he would be able to use as a kind of, I don't know, as a kind of tactical decoy in some in some situations that would really suit um, having fast forwards and pacing forwards going up, running off him. But ultimately, that his his profile wasn't what Solskjaer or United had decided that they were looking for. And, you know, people people want to judge him as a failure at United or anything. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think it's more, and it's a similar for a lot of these players that have turned up at Inter Milan or at PSG and are, in, are playing in these European finals this weekend. It's more a failure of United's own kind of joined up thinking and recruitment process that was in place before that, um, which you might say now is starting to bear a bit of fruit and they have they have got the house in order, as we've, as we've mentioned already on the pod. But I suppose for Lukaku, he'll look back on that period at Old Trafford and he'll think he was so close to joining Chelsea that summer of 2017. He was so close to joining up with Antonio Conte uh, and potentially, you know, going and onto a title defence with Chelsea that summer that he he will probably look back on that and think he made ultimately the wrong decision there and and, and should have joined up with Conte a lot sooner. I think, you know, his, his form in Italy has been brilliant this season. He has scored I think a lot of penalties but certainly over the last since the restart basically he's really just taken he's, he's taken into onto new onto a new level and he, even as things were kind of falling apart a little bit during the back end of the Serie A season he was still scoring goals and still reliable so um yeah I mean <laughs> he's, he's taken on a new lease of life in Italy and I know the best of him because I think he deserves it I think he I think he was a genuinely an excellent player, an excellent striker, to be honest, and if anything, a little bit underrated in the Premier League. And certainly, I think his time at United is a little bit misjudged. Well, um, just to jump off of United, there, um, what did you make of Sevilla when you when you saw them? Were you impressed? And would you say that they're, um, well, I suppose, would you say they're favourites in a competition that they they clearly adore? Um, so yeah, well, the thing with Sevilla is they've won this competition so many times, and people remember them winning this competition so many times that. Um, I think it kind of gets missed that basically none of the players who even won the competition in a, a three-peat, if you like, a few years ago, 2014, 15, 16, 
there's only Ava Benega and I think um, uh, the right back whose name escapes me now actually, but Escudero, I think it is, who who are still in the squad from those games. So yes, the club has a kind of affinity with the competition um, because they are, I suppose, at that level of club. They are too too big to fail in La Liga, if you like. Really, um, they're, they're always going to land about fourth, fifth place, but perhaps not quite good enough to get through the. Champions League group stages or not too far in the Champions League. So this competition suits them. It's it's kind of at home. And to be honest, I think they're now, after the other night, they're now on a 20-game unbeaten run, which is the longest in their history, which is something that didn't look particularly uh, likely before the lockdown um, when Helen Lopetegui was under quite a lot of pressure. Um, but since then... He's he's a he's a defensive coach. He's a cautious coach. He prides himself on keeping teams out first of all, and they've ultimately laid those kind of foundations to to go on this run that's uh, led them to qualifying for the Champions League quite easily, getting a top four finish in Spain. And to be honest, I don't. If if you ask me to try and predict it for for tomorrow's final, I'm, the way Inter blew away Shakhtar the other night, you'd have to say that they're favourites, but. Sevilla look like a difficult team to break down, and and just just in the way that just how aggressive they are, I think I I'm I'm, I'm probably going with Inter, but I wouldn't I really would not be surprised if Sevilla, who have against United and against Wolves as well, look really impressive. I wouldn't be surprised if if, if they were to win it either. Migs, how do you see this going? Yeah, I'd agree with um, Chris. I think it's actually just despite my previous praise for Antonio Conte, I think it is a very tight game. Um. But I think Inter will just shade it. Um, I'll go two one Inter. Uh, Chris, do you want to chuck us a score before we go to the break? Okay, uh, two two nil two Inter. <laughs> no. Oh no, no, actually, I'm going to change that because that completely goes against everything I just said. I'll say instead uh, one nil to Inter. There you go. What a marked difference that was. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll compose ourselves and we'll be back talking about the Champions League after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. Before the break, we discussed the Europa League mini-tournament out in Germany. Now, let's move over to Portugal and the Champions League. Miguel, you've been our man on the ground in Lisbon for the duration of these knockout stages. Uh, you talked a bit about, about the kind of lack of carnival atmosphere at the top of the show, but how has uh, the whole operation been running? Yeah, smoothly. Bit of uh, detail last night. I was actually, after, after the match, I was going for a walk around central Lisbon. Uh, and it was on um, uh, Libertad, which is one of the kind of main thoroughfares. And literally, as I'm walking by with this that swanky hotel in the middle, which has a kind of a well-to-do Asian restaurant, there's two kind of Merc vans with blacked-out windows. Uh, I'm walking by one of them, and just to my left, five feet away, is uh, Nasser Al-Khalifi, the um, director of PSG, and uh, the entire PSG entourage. 
so I was like literally, literally feet from them. Hope he didn't read yesterday's independent. Well, actually, no, I hope he did. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's obviously where they were watching the match. Um, in terms of that, yeah, everything's gone quite smoothly. You had a chance to really affect something there, but you, you let's just say you were the bigger man, decided not to make a show of it then. Fine. Um, Critch, you've watched a lot of Manchester City this season. It all looks to be going just as planned when they knocked out Real Madrid a fortnight ago. Kind of, there were a lot of people's favourites, along with Bayern Munich, to see this right through to the end. But then Leon, Leon came along on Saturday night and, well, handed out one of the most disappointing evenings in their recent memory. Um, what went wrong? Where, where, where do you start, really? I think everything went wrong, didn't it? Um, I think without preempting what Miguel will probably talk about, um, we can talk about Pep Guardiola and his selection. Um, certainly. Certainly overly cautious, you would say, for a team that was playing against uh, the seventh best team in France, albeit one that was decided, you know, in an incomplete season and, and were gaining form towards the end. But still, I think um, this question that we have about Guardiola and whether he overcompensates sometimes for things that have happened in the past, whether he doesn't quite trust his players um, after losing heavily with, with Bayern Munich against Real Madrid back in, I think, 2014 it was. Whether he, whether he doesn't quite feel that he can play the brand of football that is so successful for him domestically uh, in these Champions League knockout games. I think, to be, to be fair, before, I always thought that was something of a not, a... not a myth, but a theory, and a theory that we couldn't really prove or test. And certainly people who've worked with Guardiola, they would say that wasn't the case. They would say that... He's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a nonsense, and it's it's, it's us outside looking in and and casting aspersions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I, 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 the the, um, the the body of evidence is mounting, and you'd say that at the same time, I think Miguel will talk about that probably. So there are other reasons, and there were other familiar problems I thought as well. Like once once it goes one one, um, and the move for the second goal. We can talk about refereeing decisions and plenty of City fans will, I'm sure. But once again, it was really just striking just how easily they were, Leon were able to break through and, and to kind of beat the press, if you like. That's been a problem that City have had basically all season. They've looked extremely vulnerable and surprisingly vulnerable to counterattacks, considering that this was a team not two years ago, even last season, that we associated with having one of the most effective kind of presses in certainly in the Premier League, maybe in Europe. Now they just look weak in that kind of, in the, in those central areas. And um, I particularly thought the decision to, to play Eric Garcia in the centre of the defence, um, given all the uncertainty about his future at the minute and given his relative inexperience, was an interesting one. I thought that was one that... Guardiola probably got wrong as well. And you might even say that wasn't such a cautious decision. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons. We haven't even we haven't even got on to Raheem Sterling's miss. I mean, those are the sort of things that you don't really account for. And I think it's worth saying that City certainly had the chances to put Leon away. And I think, you know, if we might talk about last night's game, um, the semi-final with Leon uh, a bit later. But if Leon aren't are just as clinical as the i.e. not clinical as they were against Bayern last night City probably go through in the end and so there's an element of bad luck in there but ultimately I think everything all the problems kind of stemmed from 
the same questions that we have about Guardiola and his selection and, and how he goes into these games with a different mindset to, to how he usually does. The, I think the fundamental issue, I, I think you're absolutely right, City in some degree got unlucky. Um, you know, on another night, it could, it could still have gone through. But really, the primary problem and why this warrants focus is that through his tactical approach, Guardiola reduced the massive gap between Manchester City and Leon. That's what it really comes down to. He gave his tactics gave Leon a better chance of winning and a chance they took, and that is becoming a trend. I think sometimes it has been overstated. Sometimes they have lost out to freak results, but even within those, you, you, there there have been decisions which might make sense to Guardiola on some level, but they repeatedly don't work out in practice as as he might expect and which maybe would otherwise give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and, and, and this is the thing, even if this problem hasn't been as pronounced in previous seasons, I think the more it keeps, keeps happening, the longer it keeps going, the actually the likelier all this is, because it's only, I think it's only deepening his kind of, what now seems a real neurosis about the, at the Champions League. And we've discussed this with Guardiola on the pod before, but I think there was already a kind of a foundation for this because let's, like, we all, we've all seen the famous picture of Guardiola as a 14-year-old ball boy uh, when, when, when Barcelona came back from 3-0 down against Gothenburg uh, to qualify for the, the Euro, European Cup final in 1986. Now, that, they'd never won the, the European Cup to that point. It was a competition associated with their massive rivals, Real Madrid. So this is all playing on that. They're going into that final thinking they're going to finally break it. And they suffer one of their, or they, sorry, they produce one of their worst performances, get beaten on penalties by Stoya Bucharest. She's kind of prolonging, and, and this is too, this is for a teenage Guardiola, which I think kind of almost sets a seed there. Then he's part, he's part of the dream team in 92, which finally lifts this. We have the, the famous image of Guardiola presenting the trophy to the cat, to the the Barca support while in um, invoking a quote by a famous Catalan poet, uh, you know, which is kind of tied up with, you know, the, uh, political representation in the area. But then they, they immediately go and squander the kind of momentum from that by getting hammered 4-0 in the very next final by Milan, again, when they're massive favourites. And and while he kind of restored some pride to their Champions League, with, like, with possibly the best Champions League team ever in 2009 and 2011, since then, he's just had failure upon failure. And I, I think it's just consolidated all these kind of complexities had with the Champions League and means that it, it, I think, I think again, this is speculation, but I think it stands up to the evidence. Uh, it affects his confidence in his natural game. Because I think if City go out, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about when or, whether Guardiola started to pass it a bit, whether, you know, the, the, the effectiveness of his football. But I think if City go out and play their normal game against Lyon, or against most really 99.9% of opposition in Europe, They'll beat them relatively comfortably. I think. I think it's still one of the best approaches in football. But he didn't do that. He came up with some weird compromise that felt unnecessary. Uh, and I think that's what it comes down to. So, what is next for City, and I suppose more pertinently Guardiola? Then, obviously, they've made a couple of signings in Nathan Aki and Ferran Torres already. Um, with regards to the the players coming in, are there likely to be any more, and will they be a with a mind of addressing these problem areas that Miggs has touched on there to an extent? Well, they definitely want another centre-half um, and people were seeing every, the, the one that's been linked is, is Kaladu Koulibaly. There were some reports in Italy yesterday suggesting that that was even imminent and that they were they were wide of the mark, I think. But 
they're certainly interested there, uh, would like to get that over the line. And they, they want, even though they've signed Ake, they do want that figure who is just a dominant and commanding centre-half in the middle of the defence that they can play alongside Laporte, left-sided, have one that's on the right side as well. Ake can come in, perhaps um, fill in at left-back sometimes as well, because that's a problem position. Um, and yeah, I would expect them I would expect them to strengthen, whether it's Koulibaly or somebody else, or whether, and in other areas as well, because uh, not, not to bring it back to FFP and, and let that rear its head again, but that is that is on hold, basically, because of the pandemic, isn't it? So it's an opportunity for clubs like Manchester City to, to flex their muscles, if you like, and... and a rebuild is needed. Guardiola spoke about this towards the end of last season. Uh, you've seen David Silva go out the door. Yes, he's got a ready-made replacement in Phil Foden, but um, there's there's areas of the squad, there's players there this, this season that haven't really lived up to expectations that they did last year. And I, you think there's, there's some, judging by some of the selections, certainly the other night, and some of the choices that Guardiola made in terms of substitutions, that there's some that he's not too sure of either. Um, you've got Sergio Aguero coming down the line who he's probably going to leave as well. So there's a lot of um, succession planning, if you like, that needs to be done. And I imagine that will be done this summer. Um, but arguably, there's no bigger succession planning that needs to be done than Guardiola himself, who's, whose contract runs out uh, this time next year, um, if not before then. And there's not really been any, any indication, certainly any affirmative positive indication yet, that that's going to be extended. And... There's a big question, I suppose, at the moment about just where City will go if that's the case and and whether you really want to be, you know, throwing a load of money at a big squad rebuild and whether you can attract players to the club um, without Guardiola there long term. It's, it's, it's a big question. It's the question that's really going to hang over them for the, for the, the, entire, the entirety of the 2020-21 uh, season. Um, whether whether it's a successful one or not. Let's not forget as well, Guardiola's never been in this situation before. He's already, this is already the longest he's spent at any club. Um, so usually, so he's obviously, he's had one cycle at a club and gone. So how he can build again, whether existing players will get, because I mean, he's quite an intense manager, whether the effect will start to wear off. It's going to be really interesting to watch now. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was going to th- throw it to you straight away, Miguel, after that, and ask you what kind of way you thought. If you, given that it's unprecedented for Guardiola, and and what you've outlined there as, as someone who's who's can be, I suppose, grating might be the right word, you know, after a sustained period of time under stewardship, is it how how important then are these new faces that come in and and I suppose make the whole project feel fresh and therefore give him you know, the impetus to stay on. Yeah, uh, I think very important. And it, it comes back to the old kind of Ferguson maxim that the most you can achieve with any group of players without significant change is three to four years. Because uh, it, it just needs to be refreshed. It needs people who will kind of take the impact again. And uh, whether they do enough of that is going is, 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 is to be interesting. And let's not forget, it's only three years since Guardiola had one of the most expensive, expansive uh, transfer windows any club have ever had, particularly the amount they spent on fallbacks. Uh, and now, just three years into his reign, or sorry, four years into his reign, we're only two league titles, no matter how spectacular they were. We're talking about probably a, a similar outlay to get back on track. And that, that does get to the point where you, you start to ask bigger questions of this, really. Uh, and I do, I do think Guardiola is one of the greatest coaches of all time. But 
the longer it goes and the more money they spend into it, they're kind of more like a bit more complicated the balance sheet looks um, about what he, what he actually needs to succeed. We'll, uh, we'll move this discussion on to our Champions League finalists and we'll, we'll start with PSG. They've shown a, a different side to themselves over the last few games, um, notably the way they came back against Atalanta, much to uh, the annoyance of ev- every other football fan in the world apart from PSG fans. Um, have you seen a kind of a, a different edge to them? They seem a bit more... I'm not going to say wholesome, uh, but they see, you know, they seem a bit more together as a as a club and have that kind of unity that that comes when you when you get to these um, latter stages of any kind of tournament. Yeah, there's certainly not the kind of mental, uh, what would you call it, weakness, I suppose, that we've seen in in previous years. I was at the myself and Miguel actually were at the the United game last year, which was maybe maybe just the most incredible game that I've ever actually been to. I think just for the the sheer just how the collapse and 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 just how, how it all ended the climax but i think if there's a difference i think it's probably i think it's probably in the difference that they pay for and that is neymar i think um he obviously wasn't playing in that the united game last year he was on the sidelines kind of with his with his jaw dropping like the rest of us um and if you think back to the to the uh, remontada at, at the new camp um, a couple of years before obviously he was he was there then but he was playing for barcelona at that time uh, now he's kind of producing the goods that PSG paid all that and totally distorted the transfer market for. And I think hit the, looking at him and the way that he's performing over these over this little uh, mini tournament as well, he's, he seems to have really taken on that mantle and he seems to be almost reveling in the responsibility to a certain extent. Um, seems like he's actually enjoying himself. And yeah, I think that's a, that's a huge difference for them. I, I think obviously Tuchel as well. You said I know he was there last season, but I've always rated him as a coach, and I think his brand of football as well was. You, you might say it might be difficult to implement at PSG given this reputation that they have um, as a kind of glitzy glamour club, and where he's all about hard pressing, hard working. But he seems to have successfully managed to do that, and particularly. In, I thought Angel Di Maria, for example, has been he's been excellent over the past uh, during this little tournament uh, break. Um, Mbappe's obviously struggling a little bit with the injury. We'll see whether he's right for the final, but they just seem to be. It's difficult to to really put your finger on, but they look to, to be approaching games with a different mentality and a different belief. And although you don't like to point to those intangibles all the time, it does feel like that we're looking at something of a different Paris Saint Germain now. Migs. Um... Do they have a chance against Bayern Munich? Oh, yeah, I think it's very much 50-50. Yeah, maybe 51-49 Bayern, if I mean, no slight edge. But, yeah. Um, and I think that kind of... It, it's a little it's a bit like what Chris was talking about there. I think Bayern have a better idea as a team, better tactical idea. More, say, all of their players committed to what the, kind of man, the coaching staff wants. I think they're more competent in more areas. But... That is offset by the fact that PSG probably have higher quality individuals, particularly two individuals in Mbappe and Neymar. And while I think Lewandowski is probably the best number nine in the world, I don't think he's. I think I think Neymar and Mbappe are better players, capable of more match-winning moments, especially and not just moments not just related to scoring. And that's what I think levels it out and genuinely makes it a, a very close to a level game, maybe. The most level Champions League final since 
probably 2008, I'd say, actually. Who was the... I'm trying to think about 2008 well, was... It was Chelsea Manchester United, who'd finished... Right, right, the, yeah. You know, we'd gone to the final day against each other in the... Uh, um, in the title race that season. Coincidentally, I think a personal coincidence, uh, that I, I didn't go to... That was the last Champions League final I didn't go to. And I've been at all Champions League finals since 2009. Actually, they, I, I would say... In that, well, it's obviously... It's a massive privilege to go. I should always preface everyone with that. But I don't think I've been to a truly good Champions League final. Right. It's, well, hopefully you've, you've not jinxed this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the... Um, you know... Uh, well, yeah, you've written about Bayern Munich today um and while you said they they're not necessarily going to have it all the way but you'll put it 51 49 in their favor but it does feel like a final where we're talking about the individuals as, as you have done there rather than the, the teams themselves is that kind of is that just where fo- we are with football at the moment or do, do you think this is um you know if Bayern win in particular this is the start of something really special for them as a collective given the age bracket that a lot of their players are at well, so I think all of this, and I think this is something that is going to be fun to discuss more after the final. But I think it's it's we've we've had this kind of super club era for a decade now, and I think we're kind of all of this is pointing to the next stage of the super clubs, and you can kind of see it in some of the recent managerial appointments, and also in the difficulty some of the super clubs are having. With Barcelona being the most obvious example, but to a degree, Manchester United, to a degree, Real Madrid. In that they, we mentioned United, particularly with Pogba and De Gea, say, where they've got players on bloated contracts that do that do cause issues if they drop off form or if they try move on or in term, um, or, or if they try to reshape their squad in, in, in any way. Uh, and I think we might go through phases of um, the Super Cup almost go through cycles like this of kind of tight, really tight squads which is what Bayern have at the moment, or then trying to almost facilitate the superstars. It's going to be contrast between these really kind of um, efficient tactical ideas and then on the other side, teams that are almost collections of stars and how best you kind of psychologically manage that. Um, I, I, I think this, to a certain degree, almost captures this difference, this, this final in particular. Uh, they're obviously two, two big super clubs, if in very different ways, Bayern are kind of the uh, the epitome of old money in football. Uh, PSG are the epitome of the nouveau riche, with that complicated by the bigger issue that they are essentially a state project uh, and everything questionable about that. Um, um, but then there's also this contrast in, them, in terms of the very teams. What do you think, um, well, with regards to one individual in particular, um how much can can we credit Hansi Flick for um, for what Bayern Munich have been producing over the last few months? Um, well, I think he's been absolutely key, particularly in terms of psychological management of the team. Um, I was at Bayern on the 30th of November. I think Flick had already come in by that point. And they played Leverkusen at home and got beaten 2-1. And they were appalling. That was in a period when they were in disarray. And it's amazing given the run they're on now. I mean, I, I was just looking at the stats and... No one has ever gone into a Champions League final, not even Manchester United 99, on the form Bayern are, which is 10 straight wins in the competition. So no one's ever had a perfect Champions League in, in which they win every game. Obviously, that's a little bit complicated this year because of the fact it's one-off games rather than two legs. Um, no one's ever gone in after 20, 20 wins in a row in the way they have or on a run where they've won 28 at the last 29 games and only drawn one of those. 
uh, not even losing. Um, uh, so Flick is obviously key to, key to that. But just as important, I've been told, was actually the appointment of, as assistant, Danny Rawl in the summer, who is um, who comes from the kind of Leipzig school, basically, and has been seen by the, the players all rave about his work, as they, as they put it in that kind of football vernacular or coaching vernacular, against the ball. Um which is which has been something that's been missing for me. It, 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 it wasn't quite as important under Kovac because Kovac played such a reactive form of football. It just didn't really suit this team at all. And it's amazing, given what they're at now, what a waste of talent and potential that might have been from Kovac. It does reflect really badly on him. But once Flick came in and kind of restored him to the proactive approach that you would have seen mostly under Guardiola and then on, under Ancelotti, uh, the problem with Ancelotti is there were so many other guys. They, they weren't a very disciplined team in terms of pressing. Whereas now, because of Danny Roll, they are an extremely disciplined team in, in, in terms of pressing or against the ball, as they put it. But it, it, what it's really translated into, it means Bayern are a super focused team, but also it's it's made them a very energetic team, but with the ball and without the ball. And they, they can hurt you with both. I think that's what's so impressive about them. And I mean, what's really struck about them in the last few games, or anytime I've watched them really on this run of form is, just how supremely competent they look in almost all areas. The only flaw you'd say is how susceptible they are with balls in behind with that high line. But that's obviously a necessity of playing the way they do. And the, the feeling is that because of the form Neuer and Boateng are on, that they can compensate for that. But of course, Mbappe is going to put that up to quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Memphis Depay almost did that last night and probably should have done, actually. Uh before you two go, I'm going to ask, not necessarily for score predictions, but who's going to win it. Uh, Critch, what do you reckon? Um, well, just be, just before I get on to that, <laughs> I, I, I do wonder just how good Bayern are. I, 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 coming into this, this tournament, I thought it's them and City. Um, and obviously, on the evidence of what we've seen so far, like there's no reason to change that point of view. But you look at the teams that they've played this year, I, I do wonder, have they really been tested by any of the teams that they've played in the Champions League this season? Because they played, they had a group stage. The group stage was pot, basically Poch's Spurs and Olympiacos and Red Star, I think. And then it's been, uh, well, Chelsea, Frank Lampard's Chelsea. And we've all had our opinions about them this season. <laughs> then it's the worst Barcelona team in like since 2003 or something like that. And... And then Leon, who, as we've mentioned before, finished seventh in France. So I think, weirdly, yes, they've won the Bundesliga and uh, the Cup in Germany as well. And they're probably going to now go and win the treble. And I'm saying, are they really all that? But I do wonder about about Sunday. And I do think Miguel pointed it out there. They played that they play that high line. It's not such a problem when you've got Alfonso Davies on one side, who's just so quick and can cover that side. But... Mbappe is going to be on the other side, probably. And they do look a little bit vulnerable down that right to me. And I do wonder, I do wonder whether it might depend on Mbappe's fitness, but I, I think PSG are going to target them there, like you saw Leon do last night. And if Bayern look, look really good, once they get the lead, they look good at protecting it. But I do wonder if PSG might expose them a little bit. And I don't know if it's enough for me to say that PSG are going to win the Champions League, but... I've got a feeling that people are slightly underrating PSG going into it. Even, you know, I, I think 50-50 is a fair shout. I think 50-50 is a fair shout. But I think the general conception is that everyone's kind of overawed with Bayern. And I think PSG perhaps tactically have 
have what it takes to expose them. I don't know what you think, Miguel. Yeah, just on, uh, I, I would actually agree. With, I think they've got maybe not tactically, but more the specific players to hurt them. And and just yeah. on what you're saying there, uh, it's I think it's one of the things that struck about about the Leon game and the Barca game. Both of those games, even though they ended up kind of you know really convincing wins, there were twenty minute periods where like Barca created about five chances. And I remember thinking, Christ, this is 50-50. Obviously, that was obliterated. Uh, and it was the same with Leon. Leon created three chances. And you're thinking, wow, this could be on. But in both cases, Bayern got that goal at just the right time. Now, of course, a lot of that has to do with their decisiveness and authority. But equally, if it goes a little way, if they don't get the look, and or if as, if, if, as is the case with a team like PSG, where they do have the firepower to take those chances, it's a very different type of test and potentially a, di- a different story. Bayern got their goals at just the right time in those games to weather those storms and kind of uh, take on take control. They mightn't have the same control against um, against PSG, and that's what's going to be very interesting. Uh, but, of course, one, I, I feel that almost morally and um, on, on a consistent basis, we should have, given the amount of coverage we've done in this, if PSG do win this final, it would be one of the saddest moments uh, in the history of European football. It would be a state, which is what, which is what PSG are in a sense through their ownership of Qatar and how they plan to use the club. Uh, it, be, the, they would be using football. Football would, would have been successfully used for the culmination of their grand plan, which has a lot of big real-world political questions about it. Uh, and I think I think it's a shame that they're in the final at all. Uh, not 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 PSG as a club because a, a club is always independent of their owners. But given this ownership, uh, I think it's it's a sad reflection on what modern football is. Is there a worry more broadly within football that if PSG do do get the cherry on top that they've always wanted, is it? Do you think it will likely open up the sport to more of this kind of thing? I know it's happening anyway, but is there, there's an element of, you know, you come in, you spend your money, and here is your reward. Here is your tangible reward that does does more than any kind of signing of a player. This is unequivocally a statement that you are a big club and you are the club in Europe. Well, they'll probably embolden Saudi Arabia in their attempts to buy Newcastle or another club because they'll have seen success Qatar, who had their massive economic Cold War rivals at the moment, that Gulf blockade. Ah, and, and I, I, from that, and I, it's like this is the kind of sad thing we're talking about in relation to what should be one of, one of football's great occasions and one of, one of the most historic and distinguished occasions. Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia will be watching this, watching this final with political motivations behind it in terms of kind of, it, 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 I'd say it will irritate them that Qatar will have got to this level before them. Uh, and and the, the very fact the game, a game like this can be put into that sort of context is, again, quite, to, to repeat what I said a few minutes ago, is a sad reflection, reflection of where modern football is and what it's become. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. Thanks to Miguel and Mark for joining me, and thanks to you for listening as well. If you are a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a rating to help more people find us as well. Be sure to follow Indie Sport and Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that's going on. And we'll see you again soon. Hold up. 